President Donald Trump's promise of a border wall has divided many on both sides of the issue. This summer, the Trump administration's zero-tolerance policy brought about the removal of thousands of migrant children from their parents to child detention centers across the United States. The move sent shockwaves throughout the country, but for many, it's deja vu. Welcome to Everything Explained, a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. I'm your host, Patrick Garrett. This isn't the first time U.S. immigration policy has been criticized for infringing on human rights in the name of national security. Many feel the separation of families at the border echoes of Japanese-American internment during World War II. Shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066. The measure called for the relocation of more than 100,000 men, women, and children of Japanese ancestry from their homes to fenced-in centers known as internment camps. But what exactly happened during Japanese internment? What are the parallels with Trump's immigration crackdown? And what can history teach us this time around? Today, we speak with Judith Dallenmeyer the Associate Director of Corporate Foundation and Government Relations at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. But she's also worked closely on the issue. I was employed as the writer-editor of the Congressional Commission on Wartime Internment and Relocation, which was the commission whose report led to the Civil Rights Act of 1988, which gave reparations of $20,000 to everyone who was interned all those who were still living, and a national apology from then-President Ronald Reagan. Uh, The commission worked for three years in the early 80s to pull together the story of what really happened leading up to Roosevelt's Executive Order 9066, which was the exclusion and internment order that ended up putting Japanese Americans in the internment camps. Even though it wasn't intended to do that, originally Executive Order 9066 anticipated that the Japanese Americans would voluntarily relocate off the West Coast. Well, that was very unrealistic, and when they didn't, they went to Congress and got a resolution supporting the executive order and making it a crime not to obey the order by being interned. So I start off every podcast with a basic question. Let's keep it simple. What were internment camps? They were 20 locations, mostly in the desert sections of the inner west, not the coast, because the order that Roosevelt signed was to exclude or get all Japanese-American citizens and their families, some of whom were non-citizens, off the West Coast. So there were 20 camps. The first ones were located in the remote Manzanar camp in Northern California, but most of them were in places like Arizona, Wyoming, and the inner states of the West. At first, It was hoped that Japanese Americans could simply be relocated there and they could go to work and find jobs and agriculture and so on. But the hysteria against them was sufficient in the country in February 1942 that the Western states' governors were having none of that. And they went to Congress 
and got Roosevelt to go to Congress to get an order that would actually intern people in camps that were built by the government. The camps weren't really ready for people until late 1942, and they were kept in temporary quarters, usually in fairgrounds or racetracks. For example, the Japanese Americans from my town, Pasadena in Southern California, were sent to Santa Anita Racetrack, and they even drew lots for who would get to sleep in the great horse Seabiscuit stall. What sparked these initial efforts to round up Japanese Americans? There had been a really growing campaign of hostility, nativist hostility to these people as fundamentally others, un-Americans, non-Americans. And a great deal of it, the commission found, was based on economic competition. The Japanese who were in Southern California were a very small part throughout the state of the population, like 2%. They were farmers and fishermen largely. But the areas in which they competed, they tended to do so quite successfully. So you can find photographs from the 1920s right through the 30s with people posting signs on their porches saying things like, no Japs, welcome, this is a white man's neighborhood. And one of the things I had, if you can call it fun, the most fun compiling for the commission report was a list of anti-Japanese organizations, Chambers of Commerce, the Anti-Japanese Laundry League, the Nursery Growers Association, the Granges in Agricultural California. So there was a lot of hostility to them even before the war broke out. And of course, Pearl Harbor raised the level to complete hysteria. What was the government's justification for detaining citizens and non-citizens alike in these camps? It really was described as a prescribed order to keep military areas from which any and all persons may be excluded. In fact, the actual language was, quote, there are prescribed military areas from which any and all persons may be excluded. That would have included, of course, every citizen, but the focus suddenly went to the Japanese Americans based on a report compiled by the military commander headquartered in San Francisco. And what our commission found that really gave the lie to the way this happened was we discovered in the National Archives, one of our researchers, a woman named Aiko Herzig Yoshinaga, after whom an archive at UCLA has been named because she was really the heroine of this inquiry, she found two exact same reports by General DeWitt, the commander's office. One of the reports had an executive summary that said, therefore, we need to exclude all the Japanese Americans and get them off the West Coast. The other executive summary said, therefore, we do not need to exclude the Japanese Americans. And there was a great deal of disagreement at high levels of the government. For example, J. Edgar Hoover, no slouch on national security, head of the FBI, did not think internment was a proper act and that it was not necessary because only those Japanese or Japanese Americans who had some connection with intelligence or unlawful activity should have been interned. So when a guy like J. Edgar Hoover thought this wasn't a great idea, 
that is one of many fact points, I would say, that points to the fact that Roosevelt was politically pressured by West Coast governors, including the attorney general at the time of California, who was Earl Warren, the future Supreme Court chief justice. And Warren later, of course, apologized for and admitted that the internment was a huge mistake. But at the time, it was a very political decision on the part of Roosevelt. Were families kept together in these camps? What was life like? They were kept together. They had to report by late February 1942 to what were called control centers in the cities where they lived, be it Pasadena, Los Angeles, Seattle, San Francisco. And at those control centers, each family was given tags for all their luggage. They could take only what they could carry and for all their family members. So you see photographs in exhibitions from the time of family members with tags around their necks going to the train station together and thereafter being known as family number 1022, family number 10,011, and so forth. So yes, families were kept together, but the conditions were not exactly, shall we say, humane. After the war came to the end, the internment camps were closed. What was the aftermath like for a lot of these released families? There was a kind of silencing, a self-silencing, because Japanese culture is attached traditionally to a great deal of shame. And in some senses, people felt that somehow it was a shame for this to have happened to them. So a great silence fell upon most of the community. That's why the 20 or so hearings that our commission held around the country were so emotional. Thousands of the people who spoke, well, sorry, not thousands, there were 750 witnesses who spoke, and many of them broke down and admitted that it was the first time they had ever talked about this period of incarceration in any degree. And I personally realized that I had had a high school classmate in Pasadena, California, class of 59, a very lovely young woman whose first name was Reiko. She was very silent. She was very smart. She was a classmate, and she almost never talked to anyone. And when I came to the commission and we had finally assembled the list of all the internees from the camp roles of the time, I looked and found her family had been sent to Manzanar, and she was a two-year-old child at the time. So I think that is my most powerful personal witnessing of the fact that there were enormous after-effects. The Japanese-American community was greatly divided by the fact that the United States government came around to the camps about a year after people were interned, and they were settled in these camps in the desert west, and they asked two questions that really divided the Japanese community. They were asking, they gave them a sort of loyalty questionnaire, and question 27 was, are you willing to serve in the United States Armed Forces? The next question was, will you swear unqualified allegiance to the United States and forswear any honor or allegiance to Japan or its emperor. And that was roughly the language. And especially the first question, are you willing to serve in the army, created a huge divide in the Japanese community, which really continues to this day. There were people who were called the no-nos, 
who said no, no to each question. Are you kidding? I'm an American citizen, and you've locked me up on no grounds with no due process. I'm certainly not going to have to show you something when you've locked me up like a common criminal. These people are still known as the resistors. And the community of people who joined the Japanese American Citizens League, which was formed during World War II, tended to be people who said yes to those two questions and who joined the army. Now, the most decorated combat team in the entire World War II theater, both Pacific and European, was an all-Japanese Army 442nd Regimental Combat Team that fought from the invasion of Anzio in Italy, up through Italy and into France, and was highly decorated for valor. I cannot tell you why they put all these Japanese Americans into one large unit it's obvious that they would not send them to the Pacific because they would be in grave danger of being shot. And in fact, those Japanese who did go to the Pacific War as translators each had a sort of body man, a white army or marine or navy person who would go with them, even to the latrine, to be sure that nothing happened to them. I'm going to take a quick a side note here. So in relation to what's been going on recently in the news, in the past month, many, including famous Star Trek actor George Takai and former First Lady Laura Bush, have attributed to Immigration and Customs Enforcement's roundup of suspected undocumented migrants and separate detainment of their children to FDR's Japanese internment of World War II. What do you see some similarities in what are some differences between what's going on currently and what happened in the past? Well, the the similarities are really, they end with the fact that both of these actions were done by executive order. But FDR's was followed by congressional legislation. And they're similar because both were linked to political pressure. In FDR's case, I think from the West Coast and the interior states, as I've already mentioned. In Trump's case, to fulfill his campaign rhetoric and to feed his base because there's been a a great deal of activity and a sort of semi-hysteria about immigrants since the 2016 election. The similarities pretty well end there. The rationale that was spelled out in FDR's case was wartime and military territory. The rationale in the ICE case seems to be the long and essentially somewhat unsubstantiated case that illegals are dangerous, and we should make no distinction between asylum seekers and illegals in terms of detention. The other huge difference is that there was no family separation. In the present case, the separation of children from their parents I believe, has major effects that are going to resonate on down through the generations. The other difference, I would say, is that the camps were well-known. They were run by a government agency once they were established. The transition centers were these fairly rudimentary fairground and racetrack accommodations. But when they got to the camps, they were run by a special war relocation authority under Milton Eisenhower, Dwight D.'s brother. They built them, they ran them, they intended them to provide sports activities to allow people to work in agriculture and so on. In the present case, the government lacks the capacity to house all these detainees. 
And uh, I just saw the Wall Street Journal reported that Tennessee's Core Civic Incorporated and a Florida-based group called GEO, these are private prison companies, have already made a considerable amount of money from housing these detainees. And the administration is proposing a 2019 budget with $2.8 billion in it to increase the number of beds at these facilities. So that's a huge difference. There was a war relocation authority. There were American Army personnel. There were professional government civil servants from the Agriculture Department, from Health and Human Services, what was its precursor, the Health Department, who actually ran the camps. Here we have an unknown number of detention sites. The the detention site number is probably known by now, but they haven't located all the children even in New York State, because they've been shipped around the country. So it's very different in that respect, in that there were 20 sites to which Japanese Americans were sent. No one was unaccounted for. For my last question, is there anything you see that America has seemed to have learned from Japanese internment? Oh, dear, I don't... I fear not. I fear not because of this. Certainly... We have a lot of evidence that the aftershocks of incarceration have continued on into the third and fourth generation. That is, Japanese-American families have largely been very silent with each other about the humiliation that occurred in those years. And I can only expect that when so many child development and pediatricians are speaking out about the present case, We can't expect a very good outcome from what's happening right now. It seems to me that it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You lock people up and call them or treat them as criminals, and there are going to be long-time psychological and developmental effects, especially on the children. All right, Judy, thank you for joining us on the show today. You're very welcome. My pleasure. That was Judith Thallenmeyer. This is Everything Explained, a podcast produced by WAMC Northeast Public Radio with assistance from Ashley Kinsey and our intern, Ann Seafelt. Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to Judith Thallenmeyer. I'm your host, Patrick Garrett. As always, we want to remind you to subscribe and leave a review because it helps us to make more podcasts just like this one.